So if you guys recall from last week, we went through a section that clearly explains um, and really taught us a lot about coming out of darkness into light um, and how we have, are changed. We are no longer in darkness. We are no longer bound to evil. And now Paul's going to build on that and he's going to take us a step further because truly we can, we can talk about coming out of light, or excuse me, coming out of darkness into light in an abstract way and, and understand, hey, this, this means we're different than we used to be. But what does it mean? What do we do? Uh, how do we live this out? And, and Paul has done a good job of using metaphor and then giving us specific details. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about avoiding lust and avoiding greed and the things that we are specifically to avoid. But today, we have the fantastic opportunity to see what the operation of the body is about. Because you have to remember, Ephesians is written to a church. Ephesians is written to a church, and it's meant to be read not in an individualistic manner. Yes, there are principles that we can apply to our lives directly, and you don't change the whole, you don't affect change in the whole without individuals changing. Like, I understand that piece, but we have to understand that Ephesians is written specifically to a church and should be read as a united church body and applied correctly in that manner. And so we have the opportunity to see what Paul says the operation of a body should be. And that's the title of the message today, the operation of the body. How are we to operate on a day in, day out, week in, week out, and Lord willing, year in, year out basis? What are we supposed to do? And the, the fantastic thing about this particular passage is we have come off a building of Christ doing everything in us. You guys remember coming off the first three chapters, we've talked about it in several different points of chapter four and chapter five, of where we get to see Christ being the one that is affecting the change in us. And now we get to see this change looks like, and we're going to talk through that. So I'm very excited. There's things in here that challenged me a lot this week, um, and I pray that these same things will be uh, an exhortation for you as well, and that we can, as a body, begin to operate as Paul is instructing here in this text. So our first point today, verses 15 and 16, the call to wise and careful walking. The call to wise and careful walking. And so if you look at verses 15 and 16 in our, in our passage, it says, therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So he starts out with a pretty broad statement. Look carefully how you walk. Did you know that we are to be looking to how we walk? We are to be looking to what that looks like. Uh, we are to be walking in a manner that is in the light, not in the darkness. And I think he's very much playing as he just said a few verses ago, walk in the light as Christ is light. Because truly it's been said about this text, the present imperatives look and walk point to a continual need. So in the wording of the original language, this is a continuous, this isn't a stopping, this is a continual aspect of walking and living out the light. The idea of taking care suggests something that does not come naturally or instinctively, but a way of life that requires some concentration. It goes on to say the Christian life is a thoughtful, reflective life that takes the road less traveled. 
Now, if we're going to take this road less traveled, we have to understand what it is to be wise versus unwise. And that can mean a lot of different things in our culture today, can, can it not? There's a lot of things today that we can look at and go, well, this person claims to be wise, and they claim to know things about gender that everyone else doesn't know. <laughs> and this person claims to be wise and know things about the atmosphere and it melting away that other people claim to not know. And there's wisdom that we claim that we have from God that others would claim that we don't. So we're in this big tangled web, this big tangled mess of confusion about wisdom. Where do we find wisdom? How do we know what we are and are not supposed to do? Because even Paul talks about the wisdom of the world being foolishness. 1 Corinthians 3.19, he says, the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. So how, how do we narrow down what this wisdom is? I think truly the best way to describe wisdom is Christ. Now you may think, well, that's a really easy Sunday school answer. Well, the, the thing about it is Christ is the revelation. It is the full embodiment of God's wisdom. It's the best revelation of God's wisdom to us. He is the absolute best revelation of God's wisdom in order for us to know this is how you are to live. This is what wise living looks like versus this is what unwise living looks like. And Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are being abolished but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined from the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you can see already just the plan of salvation seen in Christ is, talked, is described as wisdom, the mystery of God set down before time began. And so I think it's important for us to notate, and I would highly recommend even jotting this down in your Bible next to you if you, if you like writing in your, in your Bible, wisdom, the best revelation of wisdom, the best determinant for wisdom is Christ. And so how are we going to then dictate how we walk? How are we going to be careful about how we walk in wisdom? Well, we look to Christ. We look to Christ, and we're going to go more into this here shortly, but as a body, we look to Christ. We are drawn to Christ. We have each other look to Christ for what he has done for us. We have, them, we have each other look to the gospel. We, we understand that Christ impacts every decision that we make, and in so doing, we can be careful in our walk. In Colossians Paul says again, remember, Colossians was written at the same time as Ephesians and was likely even carried possibly by the same person for a time. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. James 3, 13 echoes again, wisdom, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works and the gentleness of wisdom. So you can see again and again, Scripture is telling us that wisdom is tangled with, meshed with, overlaps with how we walk and act. And we do that by understanding Christ and who he is through his word. Now in verse 16, 
Paul's going to add on another caveat to this, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. What a sentence. What, what a thought. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Does that mean we live every day as if time itself, the days itself, are nothing but evil? I think if we look around, I could make the argument that that's exactly what Paul says. I think if we look around, we can understand that Paul is truly telling us that this world is broken. The days that we are given are evil. Yes, they can be redeemed. Yes, God glorifies himself uh, in his justice, even with the evil that abounds. But we have to understand that we truly live in a time where the days are evil. Not unlike the Ephesians did in their day. And this idea of redeeming the time is the idea of not wasting what God has given you. Take every day and understand that the basis of every day is broken by sin and comes out of this idea of sin constantly being the prevalent nature of everything around us. And yet we can understand that we have, by this command, in wisdom, found in Christ, the ability to redeem the time through his strength. Don't waste the opportunities that you have. And I'm going to point to this passage a couple of different times, so you even want to, may want to put a finger there, but Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because there's a lot of practical application from Paul in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it for us here. It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which are your spiritual service of worship. And here it is, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. The application for Romans 12, 1 and 2 is wide. You'll hear me reference that, that passage possibly in other sermons or other teachings because truly when we think about not being conformed to this world and transforming our minds, that is the epitome of what it means to redeem your time. Now, please understand I'm not saying that all entertainment is bad, but what is your focus? I enjoy movies just like the next person, so please understand this is not a... Uh, 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 legalistic mentality of set aside all entertainment or, or those relaxing times with family. But what I am asking you is, what is your priority? That's all I'd ask you to, to look at. Are you redeeming your time? Are you making the most of the opportunities that you have? Because the days are evil. And we have to understand that we must have the wisdom that we find in Christ. Remember in Ephesians 3.19, it says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Knowing Christ is the epitome of wisdom, and when we have that wisdom, we can then redeem the times by understanding what the world is doing that is unwise and foolish. And then once we understand that, we can make better choices through the power of the Spirit to then redeem the time and to grow in Him. Because if we are not intentionally intentionally taking the time to redeem what has been so used for evil for so long. Just think about the things that have been used for evil for so long. And we have the ability to intentionally, through wisdom, redeem the time for God's 
glory. He uses us for his glory. And understand, this is not about escapism. I'm not saying that we, we take ourselves out because if every day, every day is evil, there's a part of us that goes, well, I don't want any part of that. Let's just, let's just remove ourselves. Let's just, we'll go live as monks and we'll just call it good from there and we don't have to worry about it. I'm not talking about escapism. What I'm talking about is taking the time through the wisdom of Christ, understanding who he is to redeem the evil days to his glory, because that is truly what we are called here to do. We as believers, our number one focus is to glorify God. And so Paul opens up this particular passage with a call to be wise and careful in how we walk. And that's our application pursue Christ. Seek and pursue Christ. He is wisdom personified. You redeem the opportunities in these evil day and times to learn Christ more. Protect yourself by understanding who Christ is and what he has done. Buy back that time. The idea of redemption, especially in biblical times, is the idea of redeeming someone off of a slave block. Buying someone back. Buy back the time. Redeem the time. Bring it out of the evil clutches that it's in and use it for the glory of God. But how do we do that? So number two, wise and careful don'ts. Wise and careful don'ts. Verse 17 and 18. We'll, We'll stop in the first part of verse 18, but follow along with me. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Let's stop there. So now we're looking at the don'ts, wise and careful don'ts. And so Paul is going to continue to build on account of this. So because we are to be redeeming the time, because we are to walk as wise, not as unwise, on account of that, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So now he's contrasting wisdom versus foolishness. And you'll see that all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture, you'll see wisdom being contrasted with foolishness. Now, when I say foolishness today, you probably have the idea of silly, of, of just that guy, he's, a, he's kind of foolish, you know, just being, that is not the idea of foolishness in Scripture. Uh, the idea of foolishness is devastating decisions that impact yourself or those around you. Devastating decisions that impact those, yourself and those around you. And so we have to understand that the idea of foolishness here, because it's going to play into the not getting drunk with wine as well, is doing things opposite of wisdom. Now, we just established that wisdom is what? Christ. And we, we established that getting more wise is to knowing more about Christ and to understand what he would have us to do and to live as he has called us to live, no longer being in darkness, but coming into light, as we saw last week. And so now we're seeing that to be foolish is to do, make decisions that are devastating to yourself or those around you. And so ultimately what it comes down to is Paul is saying, doing anything outside of the will of God is foolishness. Doing anything outside the will of God is foolishness. Now, how do I know that? Because in verse 17, he continues on, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that is, again, contrasting against foolishness. But let's really think about this from a biblical perspective. We as Reformed Baptists would say God created the world. I think Scripture is very clear on that. 
God set down all the rules, right? We know that God gave us his law. Is it not the epitome of foolishness to not do things the way that God designed them or commanded them? So let's think about that for just a second in our common context. If you had the engineer who designed the car that you drive, let's say you drive a Toyota. Here's your Toyota. The engineer of this car, I mean, he designed it. He was the chief engineer. He, he was the one that made the decision on where everything went, how this operates. This is, this is how this car is supposed to function. And he comes and tells you, here's the owner's manual. Here's how this functions. And you go, I think I know better, though. I'm going to put water in the gas tank because that is cheaper, and I can get it out of my hose in my yard as opposed to the hose at the gas station. Does that have devastating consequences for yourself and those around you? It does, doesn't it? And so in the same idea, we as human beings in our pride and in our arrogance look to the creator, the God of the universe who laid down everything, every law, and said this is how things are supposed to operate, this is how you should act. We look at him and go, no, don't think I will. And then we choose to do our own thing and go, well, I don't understand why that didn't work. It's the same idea of jumping back in your toilet after putting water in it and cranking the engine and going, well, I don't understand why that's not starting. You are going against the opposite. You are going against what the creator of that particular aspect of, of the Toyota, the, the world, you are going against that when you choose to be a fool, when you choose to be foolish and go, as Paul is saying here, against what the will of the Lord is. So we have to understand we cannot follow the foolishness of the world because that is opposite of wisdom. It is not the foolish goofiness that we have today. It is the literal slapping of God in the face saying, I know you created this, but I think I can do it better. That is true foolishness. But then he continues on in verse 18, and says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Now, your, your version may have debauchery. Uh, if you have an ESV, um, it may have something different there. But the idea here is wastefulness, foolish wastefulness, or um, immoral living, immoral choices. And so when we think the idea of do not get drunk... It's the idea of losing control of oneself. So I want to explain the idea culturally what this is so that we can understand it together. So first, let's define a couple things, and then we'll go through what Paul was experiencing in Ephesians and in the Roman culture and what Ephesus was experiencing. And then we're going to look at some scripture about what we should be doing to know the will of God instead. So do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Dis dis dissipation has the idea of, of extreme wastefulness, Foolish wastefulness, debauchery, again, the extreme immoral lifestyle. In the Roman culture of that time, it actually started in the Greek culture long before Christ um, was, was incarnate. But in the Greek culture, the, the ideas of really showing off your wealth, the, the best way for you to, to show off your wealth was for rich folks to have a huge party. In the Greek culture, it was only for other rich folks. And they would come together in this house <clears throat> and they would have just a, a uh, there's children in here, just a, a debauched, debased time, okay? But everything would start with alcohol. <laughs> everything would start with not just the drinking of alcohol, but the intentional desire to lose control of oneself. 
the intentional desire to lose control of oneself. So I'm not here to, to argue over can I have a drink or can I not? That's a conscience issue. But what I am going to say is Scripture is very clear that you do not get drunk to lose control of yourself because that leads to what? Foolishness. The decisions that devastatingly impact yourself or those around you. And so this same idea of all these parties would then in the Roman culture expand to not only the rich folks, but then would actually include anyone who would like to come because the more debauched people you get together, the more fun you can have is the idea, okay? In fact, it was so prevalent that there were Jewish rabbis about three to 400 years before Christ walked the earth that actually wrote, do not have these things at your gatherings lest you be accused of being like the Romans and their gatherings. Do not get drunk with alcohol, with wine, because that is a waste. Think of the waste that comes from the foolish decisions that spiral out of losing control of yourself. The debauchery and the dissipation that comes from losing control of yourself has ruined many, many lives. But instead, remember back in verse 18, instead, or excuse me, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the will of the Lord is this instead, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. So when I describe the context culturally of why Paul would write about not getting drunk and the dissipation and debauchery that comes from that, and then you read him writing in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the things you are to avoid, it kind of all makes sense, doesn't it? It all falls in line that the will of God is our sanctification to live righteously and to avoid sexual immorality and to not defraud your brothers and all those things that if you were to lose control of yourself, if your inhibitions were lowered, would that not become easier? So we must be careful to not lose control so that we are not foolish in our decisions. And so Paul is giving the first contrast. So our application here is that Paul is giving us the negative imperative first. So he's giving us the don'ts. Avoid these things. You remember last week again or the last couple of weeks we've talked about other things to avoid. But here he wants us to avoid foolishness that comes, the decisions that come from losing control of ourselves which is truly the epitome of foolishness. Bring ourselves to where we cannot physically control our decisions is the epitome of a devastating decision. Let us avoid those things and seek first, seek instead the will of the Lord. Point number three, here's our do's, and this is gonna, well, we're gonna spend some time here because I want us to focus more on what we can pursue as a body 
Um, we need to absolutely look at the don'ts. Please don't hear me saying we're going to neglect those. But as human nature, in my opinion, and I, I, I think a lot of us would, would perhaps agree, in our human nature, it is easier for us to have a list of things to pursue than it is to have a list of things to avoid. Because in pursuit of the things you are to do, the things that you're to avoid naturally become avoided. Do they not? The old adage is, if your hands are busy doing good work, your hands are not free in idleness to do bad. Pursue those good things. So I want us to focus a lot on the do's. So this is the wise and careful do's. So we've looked at the wise and careful don'ts. Now we're going to look at the wise and careful do's. Let's pick up at the end of verse 18. It says, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we are to be filled with the Spirit. And remember, we just got off of the verse in first part of 18 that says, do not get drunk with wine. And then he says, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And so the idea here is to take on the Spirit, to drink deeply of the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, not be controlled by the alcohol or to lose control in the alcohol. So the idea here is contrasting, and please don't take this in a Pentecostal way, but to be drunk in the Spirit. Okay? That doesn't mean falling down and laughing and barking like dogs and things that you may have seen. Okay? But the idea here is drinking deeply in the Spirit. Understanding that, that the Spirit is, in fact, something that we can be filled with. Now, filled with here is not the idea of salvation. That is the indwelling of the Spirit. So if you want to understand the difference, the indwelling of the Spirit is the Spirit coming and dwelling inside of you upon salvation at your justification. The Spirit is poured out and is a gift that is given to you that never changes. Filling with the Spirit is being led and directed, is the effective controlling presence, as it's been called. The effective controlling presence. That's the idea of being filled with the Spirit. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 and in also in Ephesians chapter 3, both speak about being filled with Christ. So over and over in this letter, Paul is saying, be filled with Christ, be filled with the Spirit, be directed and controlled by the presence of Christ. So we have to understand, as opposed to being having our, our inhibitions removed and being drunk with wine, we have to be filled with the Spirit and guided and controlled by Him. The next thing we are to do under this guidance and control of the Spirit is to speak one another, to one another, excuse me, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's break those down first. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16 echoes of this almost perfectly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. So when we think about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, I'm sure many of us have heard this verse before, but when you, when you, 
really dig in here and understand that we are to be speaking to one another. We as the body are to be taking one another and pointing one another to Christ through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our responsibility in being filled with the Spirit is to help one another not only in carrying our burdens, not only in living rightly, not only in being wise. Again, this is all written to the body as a whole, but we are to actually be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is a requirement. That is a command. And the reason why I'm being so emphatic on that is because I think sometimes, and maybe I'm I'm wrong here, but I think sometimes we forget the power that music has. I really think sometimes we do. You can read articles of, of, of people who were what we would consider just an average person living their life and suddenly they went on a murder spree, right? And, and one of the things that they would write in their memoirs, I read it this week, wrote in their memoirs is one of the biggest impacts on me and my change of thinking was the type of music that I listened to. Not just the sound, but the lyrics specifically. But the, the music has such a powerful effect on the human makeup. And so when you think about you for yourself, for example, for an illustration, I, I know that when I'm in particular moods, there's specific kinds, I literally build playlists based on what kind of mood I'm in. So if I'm in that mood, I can hit that one. Anybody else in here beside mine? Just the only weirdo that does that. Okay. Because truly, does, does or does not music have an impact on who we are as humans? And then you take the ideas of, or the examples of scripture where it talks about Saul, What did Saul, what calmed Saul down? David's playing music. What is used to praise God to the nth degree in in the Old Testament? And you see it's in the New Testament. Music. But music can also be used for negative. I would absolutely argue that um, John the Baptist was beheaded in part because of music. If you remember, there was a dance for Herod. And in that culture, there absolutely would have been music. There, there was a stand-on band in, in every court of kings of those days. So I would absolutely argue that there was music involved in that dance. I think from a cultural perspective, I can prove that. So I think that music, we, we see the positive side of music, and you can see the negative side of music. And so music is impactful. And we look at groups like Bethel and Elevation and Hillsong who write specifically, who are not hiding it. We have a way of manipulating this music to get people to accept our message. We are going to change culture simply by our music. And that's what they set out to do. So if we can see that music can be used for all these things and that we as believers are commanded to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that is something we should take very seriously. Because our worship service here is not only to praise God, it absolutely is. And that is the first and, and, and primary thing. But we are absolutely here to be singing to one another. And there's a particular reason that we have the volume low like we do, or at least we, we, that, that's our goal, is so that we can hear one another. I've been in churches where you can't hear the person standing next to you shouting, let alone singing. And the intention of these songs is not so you can have a one-on-one emotional experience with God. We are here to worship and praise him and to encourage one another to look to him. Because there are times that sometimes, and I'm guilty of it here, that's impacted me this week, I stand back there and I go through the motions. My hands are in my pocket. I've had a rough week. I'm busy. It's been busy. I'm tired. And I'm singing the words because they're on the screen. 
and I'm not singing to those around me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. There are just those weeks. But it doesn't excuse us, does it? We are to sing to one another. We are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns. And when Paul uses psalms and hymns, he is specifically referencing to Old Testament passages like the book of Psalms. Um, he actually references a lot of psalms as hymns. Um, there's also hymns like the, the, the hymn of Moses whenever he came out of, of Egypt, um, things like that. So, so there are times absolutely to be singing scripture to one another, but there's also the idea of spiritual songs, which are spiritually sound, which are built off of scripture. So please know we are to be singing to one another. And men, I think I can speak for all of us when this is probably harder for us than it is for our wives or the ladies. Because I don't want anybody next to me to hear how terribly I sing or whatever the case may be. Men, sing. Sing powerfully. Sing loudly. Lead your family. Let them hear you sing to God. And that was one, that was hands down, in my own experience, the hardest thing for me to start in family worship. Hands down was me leading my family in, in praise. And I praise God that that is not as much of a hindrance now. I, I, I don't care. We're going to belt it out. We have the windows open. I hope the neighborhood, neighborhood hears it. But that is something that we have to get over ourselves in. And if that's something you as a woman, you know, obviously I'm speaking to you as well, but I know, I know for a man, as a man, that is something that's harder for us men. We, we don't want the, the people around, well, I just don't have a good voice, so I just won't sing. Sing powerfully for those around you. There is nothing that I can say that impacts outside of the, the preaching of the word on a Sunday morning that impacts those around you than hearing other believers sing praises to God. And please understand, I do not and I will not ever advocate for an emotional experience or the emotionalism that comes with music. I'm not advocating that we conjure up these emotions. Who we are singing to and what we are singing about is where the emotion comes from, not because of something that we conjure. But this is a command. We are to absolutely take the time to encourage one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It can be via text. You can send lyrics of songs to one another. To one another. But this then conjures up the next part of verse 19. So he's flowing into singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So when we are all together and we're singing and making melody, it comes from our heart to God. And that stems from the wisdom that we talked about earlier. So you see Paul's argument is start with wisdom, start with Christ, understand him. Don't make the foolish decisions, understand who he is. Be filled with the Spirit as opposed to losing control of yourself. Be controlled with, by Him. And then sing to one another in psalms and hymns so that we as a body can sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord in gratefulness for what Christ has done. And the foundation of everything comes from Him. And so it builds out into singing praise to Christ. And then it goes on in verse 20, to give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And so we have this family, this familial aspect brought back in here that we are going to do all of this to our Father in the name of Christ. But before we can get to praising Notice that it says, always giving thanks for all things in the name. 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before I go into what this does mean, I want to, to just real quickly put down what it does not mean. Always giving thanks for all things does not mean you praise God and thank him for the mass murdering of a school shooting. It doesn't mean that you give God and praise him for the travesty that is um, child sexual um, trafficking, okay? There are some things that are stemmed from sin that God does allow that is sinful in nature, that is against his will, that we ought not to praise him for. The idea here of praising God in all things is all things that Paul is talking about in this book. The praise of God for Christ, for the church, for one another, to encourage one another. So when we give thanks, ultimately, this comes from a heart. So again, Paul's building, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we sing and make melody, giving thanks to God for all that he's done for us, for everything that he's done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Father. We have to, to arrive at this aspect of thankfulness for what God has done. Because if you recall... Throughout this book, Paul has told us what Christ did first. We see our position in Christ, and then we act and do what we're supposed to do. And so Paul is giving us the operation of the body, which is to do these things in wisdom, not be foolish, be filled with the Spirit, sing and encourage one another to look to Christ so that we conjure up the thankfulness for our position in Christ, because that is the only place that the obedience comes from. Do you see how that works? Do you see how the operation of the body should work? With Christ being not only the foundation, but being the pillars and the walls and the roof that we ultimately point to to praise our God. The operation of the body is centralized around Christ. And as if the explanation he's given us is not enough, he finishes up this text and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And this last verse is going to be a segue to next week when we're going to talk about husband and wife, children and parents, slave and a master. And we're going to talk about being subject or submitting one to another. But this verse goes with the text that we're in, the passage that we're in, in, in the original language, the period comes after verse 21. There are some versions you may have where it moves 21 down with the next paragraph. In the original language, I would argue that it goes here. And being subject to one another. So in the church, in the church body, we are to be in a position of humility, that we are a family one of another, and that we are thinking of ourselves as servants. The idea here of submission is not servant master in the idea of I own that person, but this is the idea of submission in that I am here to serve. I see myself as a lowly servant redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and were it not for him, I am nothing. And then you account everyone better than you. That's the idea of submission, that everyone is more than you. And think about in our churches today, if you've been in, the, in, in church environment for very long, how different a church would look if the body truly applied this aspect to itself. 
because the majority, I would argue 99.9% of issues in a church stem from pride and someone thinking their opinion should be taken or they got offended because they think they deserve something different or whatever the case may be. And so in a fear and reverence of Christ, looking at ourselves in a position next to Christ, not in a position next to whoever we're sitting next to, we then go, next to Christ, I am nothing. And because I am nothing, I am here to serve everyone around me because I compare myself to Christ, not the person I'm sitting next to. And we submit ourselves looking again to Christ. So we see coming from this the wisdom found in Christ only, the foolishness of not following the will of God seen in Christ, the foolishness of being drunk and losing control of ourselves instead of being filled with the Spirit. And then once filled with the Spirit, we can see the operation of the body coming in, encouraging one another with Scripture, with spiritual songs, pointing to Christ so that we would be brought to a place of thanksgiving to serve one another. The operation of the body is laid out here so well for us. In fact, it's been said about this text, we might say that Paul answers the implicit question, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? These expressions of being filled with the Spirit occur in the community during their weekly gatherings and fellowship meals. The believers speak, sing, make music, offer things, thanks, excuse me, and submit to each other. That is the operation of the body. That is how we are to operate. Now, that is not everything, but that is the foundation because we're going to go into more here as, as we continue in, in the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. But our foundation has to be Christ. Our foundation has to be putting others above ourselves. And so that's our, that's our application for the positive part of the impairment, uh, imperative excuse me, here. It is more robust. And it is more helpful for us to go, let's pursue these things, because I can, I can truly say I think if the church would simply focus on what we are to pursue, which is Christ and singing, Christ in loving one another, Christ in thankfulness, Christ in, in understanding that we are servants of everyone else, we don't even have to really be concerned about the don'ts because we won't have time for it. Because we're pursuing what we should pursue. And so when we gather each week, are you coming in tired, unprepared from the night before? Not because you have to, but because you chose to not prepare yourself for worship or with a grumbling in heart? Or do you sit quietly during song time or stand quietly during song time not leading your family in praise of the Lord or, or singing to those around you so that you encourage them? If this is how the body should operate, let us pursue that in the power of the Spirit. Let us be wise and not foolish. Let us operate as we have been commanded to operate by Paul here. And I would, I would argue if everyone would take the position to consider everyone else better than themselves, all the rest would fall in place. Because if you consider everyone better than yourself, you don't care that you sing. If you consider you're here to serve everyone, to submit to everyone else, you don't care that you sing, you're here to serve them. And if Christ, and if the, the scriptures say that in a way of serving them is to encourage them in the song, I'm here to serve you. Here's your encouragement. 
I need to consider yourself less than them, and, and you're here, and, and you encourage them in, in the gospel as you're having coffee or after service. Or a text message during the week to check on someone, sending them passage of scripture maybe even. Again, I'm not trying to dictate what you have to do. I'm just giving examples. But what I will tell you what Scripture says we have to do to operate as a body is to be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another, making melody with one another, giving thanks because of what God has done as a family to our Father, and submitting to one another. Those are the things that we are commanded to do. So be thinking this week what that looks like. How does that play out in your life? What are the things in your life that you can do to operate as a body? How can we as a body do that? Because it's wildly important to understand as a young church, because in in conclusion, really, we have to understand as a young church, this is the reason why I, I felt the need to go through Ephesians first, is because this is foundationally how a body operates in this book. Salvation, the building of the church, bringing different people together, and the operation of the body in chapters four, five, and six, so that we know as a young church what we are to do. So we must walk together carefully to avoid those things that go against the will of God, pointing one another to Christ, using the powerful gift of music as a way to uplift one another. Because when we look at what He has done for us, and that is always the focus of our eyes, our lives line up behind what we are beholding. So when our eyes are focused on Christ because of what he's done, our, eye, our body, our actions, if you will, will line up behind that. So that's what I would challenge you, you with today. That's what would challenge me this week is to operate as Scripture commands. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together today as a body. I pray that this text, this, this foundational explanation of how a body operates would impact and, and lodge in each one of our hearts and minds that we would encourage one another, focus on everyone else being greater. When we compare ourselves to you, Lord, we are nothing. We've been redeemed only by you, and we thank you for that. And in that position, I pray that we will lift everyone else up, submitting to one another, that we might serve them in love to your glory. Help us remember this as we go through the rest of today and the rest of this week. In your holy name I pray, amen.